sermon podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Okay, grab your Bibles, you guys. We're going to continue moving forward in our series here on Friendship in Community. And if you missed last week, we began um, going through some content in a book that I highly recommend to you guys. It's a book called Living Into Community by Christine Pohl. That's P-O-H-L. And this is one of the best books on community that I've read. It's theological, it's practical, it's accessible, and it is convicting me to no end. It is such a good, deep well. Um, Last week, we talked about one of the four pillars that Christine mentions in this book, Living Into Community. She's a practitioner. She's worked with practitioners. And after serving numerous practitioners that work with very, very unique cases, undocumented workers, uh, refugees, those that live on the streets, these practitioners all came back and they began giving her some common denominators around what living into community requires. Last week, we talked about gratitude. Today, we're going to talk about truth telling. We're going to talk about the fact that in order for you to have a sustainable, enduring relationship of trust. It requires the humility and the courage to share the truth with one another. Let's pray. Father, we're asking today for the guidance and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we know that you're here, but we just stop today to acknowledge you and to say that you are welcome here, that you are wanted here, that you are desired here, that you're desired in this space that we set aside as holy that you're wanted in this space, God, that we have, have crafted a service in response to your invitation for your ministry and for your activity to take place in our lives. So Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Convict us today. Encourage us today. Build us up today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at the last few verses there, beginning in verse 32. Of Acts chapter 4. Scripture says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. Guys, I want us just for a second to enter into this. For a brief window of history, the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 that his followers would be one, just as he, the Father, and the Spirit were one, it was happening. I mean, that right there is revival. I know, I know we like to characterize revival in all different kinds of characteristics, salvation, healing, miracles. But I just would like to suggest this morning that when you could get people from different ethnicities and different races and different philosophical standpoints who live in different geographical regions, some wealthy, some not so wealthy, and they come together and the spirit of God is moving on them in such a way that people on their own volition are selling property to help people that are in their community that don't have a lot of money. Guys, that is revival. That is a miracle. And that's what's happening right here, that the church is experiencing the unity of the spirit in an unprecedented way. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. See, it requires all of us. It requires all of us partnering with the grace of God to walk in the unity of his spirit. Verse 34, um, uh, that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and they brought the money from the sales and they put it at the apostles' feet. They essentially said, we know that we've got people in our community that unless there is some form of provision that comes from the community, there's no way that they can stay here in this city and experience this amazing work of God that we're experiencing right now. So something interesting happens after this. And it's very peculiar, if I'm going to be honest with you guys. I can't say that I completely understand it because it's something that seems very out of sorts. It seems very uncharacteristic with what's happening right here because in chapter 5, we find out that there is a man and his wife who are conspiring together. They're working together to actually participate in a form of deception in the community. Let's read verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and that you have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Now watch this. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but you have lied to God. You have lied to God. And what we find out here as the story goes is that Ananias, right there on the spot, he drops down dead. Now, the thing that's so peculiar about this is that one of the leaders of the church, in fact, Peter... Peter is the one who is talking to Ananias that Peter lied about Jesus. You guys remember the story? Jesus is talking with Peter and he says, listen, Peter, I know that you're zealous. I know that you think you'll follow me to the end. But before that rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times. And sure enough that Peter was so vehement that he was lying against, against Jesus. And he was cursing when people asked if that Peter was following Jesus. He was lying so aggressively that he actually resorted to cursing these people out. And yet Peter didn't fall down dead. It's very, very peculiar. But some scholars believe that this was the birth of the church. That the Spirit of God, which had baptized these 120 people in Acts chapter 2, and the church was literally, literally in its infancy states. It was so vulnerable. So much so that God knew that if we allow deception into the community while it's an infant, that it will be corrupted, that its witness will be tarnished, and that the trajectory of its path will continue to stray further and further and further away from God. It was almost as if God was saying that we can't allow this in right now because it'll get into the very seedbed and foundation of the future of the church. Christine Pohl says this about deception and lying in community. She says that deception, lying, and half-truths are such a danger to communities and that they undermine a community's best efforts. 
so that all of the hard work and all the energy and all the diligence that we are putting into having faithful, joy-filled, life-giving, sustainable, enduring community and relationships, that when we allow half-truths, that when we allow deception, that when we allow lying by what we do or don't do, by what we say or don't say, that that is one of the fundamental things that erodes and tears apart relationships. You see, a relationship is built on trust. Every relationship that you have, whether it's an intimate relationship with your spouse, whether it's a, a close relationship with a friend, whether you enter into relationships with business partners, those relationships are all built on trust. And trust can only be established by truth. You cannot have trust in a relationship if there is not truth-telling. You cannot, be, you cannot have enduring, sustainable, life-giving friendships or relationships or communities if the people that are in those communities are not committing to being people of integrity who share the truth. Another way of saying that is that when we allow falsehood and error and deception and lying into our relationships, the very integrity and foundation of those relationships will erode and fall apart. The word integrity comes from the word integer. The word integer means whole. It's not a fraction. It's not a decimal. It's whole. It's a whole number. And the idea of integrity is that there's wholeness in what we think and what we speak and in what we do. The way that we live has wholeness. It has soundness. We're not being torn apart on the inside. See, today we could talk about truth from a philosophical level. We could talk about truth in terms of how to win arguments. We could talk about truth in terms of what is the philosophical nature of truth. But today I wanna to talk about truth in terms of how it affects our relationships. See, the goal of truth is for truth to work its way so deep inside of us that it actually transforms our lives. Go with me to John chapter one. John chapter one, verse 14. In John chapter one, we find as we follow John's readings, beginning in verse one, you don't have to turn there, but remember in verse one, John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, that Jesus was the very full expression of the wisdom and the truth of who God is. But he didn't stop there. Look at verse 14, that the word became flesh and lived among us. See, the goal for us is not just to be able to know the truth, the goal is not to have the right answers. The goal is not to be able to quote verses. The goal is not to be able to win arguments. The goal is not to be able to defend ourselves. The goal is that our lives reflect the truth that we believe. The goal is that we are so married to truth that we live and we incarnate the truth in every situation and circumstance of life, particularly when no one else is watching. That's when you know that truth has gotten down into the inside of you. See, one of the reasons why we practice falsehood and deceit is because we're trying to protect ourselves. We're either afraid of something, we're afraid of some kind of consequence, or we're trying to preserve something. We're trying to preserve status. We're trying to preserve a, a position. We're trying to protect our good name. We're trying to protect someone else's feelings, or at least that's what we say that we're trying to do. And yet every time we practice in some sort, sort of lying 
or we're not telling the full truth, or we're using these manipulative words that kind of kind of take people off of our scent, off of our trail. Anytime that we do that, we have to have enough courage to look down deep inside of us and say, what is it that I'm trying to preserve? And what is it that I'm trying to protect? But we're doing it in a false manner, which means that anytime we try to utilize lying and deception and distortion and aversion, or evasion as a form of protection, friends, you have to know that it'll always get you. It will always get you. It will always be found out in some way at some time. And I've just discovered that it usually happens in the most inopportune times, right? So truth is a person and our journey into truth is our growing relationship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Another way of saying it is like this. If you want communities and relationships that are gonna last, then they have to be trustworthy. And in order for them to be trustworthy, they've gotta be grounded in truth. And in order for them to be grounded in truth, we have to be people who are committed to growing in truth. And in order for us to grow in truth, we have to grow in our relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit, because that is where the standard of truth will be established in our lives. Let's take a look here at John chapter 14. Now I said that truth is a person and some of you might say, I don't understand that. I thought truth was a, a statement of, of facts that are, that are real. Well, Jesus said this when he was talking to his disciples and he says, guys, I'm about to go far away from here and where I'm going, you can't come. And then one of his disciples says, well, tell me where you're going and show me the way and I'll follow you. And Jesus says this in John 14, Verse six, he says, I am the way and I am the truth. In other words, when you wanna know what truth is, you have to look to Jesus. He is the epitome of the truth of all things. And we're not talking about just believing the right things. We're talking about a living, intimate, open, undisclosed, dynamic relationship whereby we allow truth to speak to us. Look at John chapter 14, verse 16 and verse 17. Jesus here continued to teach his disciples. He says to them that I will ask the father and he will give you a helper, the Holy Spirit. And look what the Holy Spirit's name is. He is the spirit of truth. The world cannot see him. The world cannot receive him. The world does not know him. We have the spirit of truth living and dwelling inside of us. Guys, listen, we have an advantage. We have a leg up over the world to be the most truth-filled and truthful people on the planet, which if my theory's correct, if the sequence of my thoughts is correct, that we as the people of God have the potential to have the most enduring and stable and unshakable relationships on the planet if relationships are built on trust and trust is built on truth. And we have truth living inside of us. The way that we grow in truth in our lives is by growing in our relationship of intimacy with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look at John 15, verse 26. John 15, verse 26. And when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. See this relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus is sending to us the Holy Spirit who is the standard bearer of truth. I'm gonna flesh this out here in a second. 
He is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father and he will testify about me. In other words, he will tell you the truth about me. Everything the Holy Spirit does will be in absolute alignment and agreement with the character and the nature of who God is as revealed in Jesus. Next verse in John 16, verse 13. John 16, verse 13, Jesus says, but when he, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. What does this mean? What does this look like? And why am I spending so much time on this? I thought this was a series about relationships and community. Friends, your truth-telling with one another begins with truth-telling with yourself in the eyes of God, right? Because think about this. If you have a relationship with someone who you don't trust as trustworthy, in that one moment when they finally tell you the truth, it will be empty. It won't carry any weight. See, the way that our truth-bearing and our truth-sharing with one another carries has any teeth in it at all is when I look at someone's life and I know that person is a person of integrity. I know this person is married to the truth. They love the truth. They have a relationship with truth. They have a commitment to truth. So I can trust the truth when they share it with me. The Spirit of God will guide us into all truth. What does that mean? It means that when we find ourselves being manipulative with ourselves, it means that we find ourselves saying things that are not complete to justify decisions that we're making that we know are not truthful or we know that are not right. Look to the Holy Spirit. Look to the Holy Spirit. Just ask the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will help you tell the truth to yourself. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of light. There's a reason why in the scriptures, truth and light go together. Light is the predominant metaphor used for truth and used for the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. And that's because the Holy Spirit has been given to you to shine light on the darkness of your mind and your heart to bring you and me into a life of truth. He cares about your relationships And he knows that your relationships will only have a prayer of standing if they're standing on truth. Now, how do we get there? I said earlier that becoming a trustworthy person begins with being truthful with God. We will be truthful with one another to the degree that we're actually being truthful with God. In Genesis chapter 39, and I encourage you guys to read this on your own. Genesis chapter 39, we read the story of a young guy by the name of Joseph. In the previous chapters, we find out that Joseph had 11 brothers. Joseph was favored, so much so that his brothers became jealous and envious, and they betrayed him and sold him to the people of Egypt. He found his way to a house by, the, by, um, a, house by a man named Potiphar. Boy, I had a hard time getting that out. <laughs> so here Joseph is in Potiphar's house. And the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 39, and I think this is actually pretty comical. The scripture tells us that Joseph was handsome and he had a bod. Now you look right there in the scriptures. He was handsome and he was well built. Joseph was a stud man and Potiphar's wife took notice. Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph physically. So much so that she began coming to him and trying to seduce him and trying to entice him. And here's what Joseph's response was to Potiphar's wife in Genesis chapter 39. He goes, listen, listen, your husband is Potiphar and he's a powerful man in Egypt and Egypt is the most powerful land in all of the world. And in Potiphar's household, no one is as important as me. 
I am second in command in Potiphar's house. He has entrusted everything in his family, in his home to me. This relationship that I have with him, master to slave has been built on trust because of the integrity I've lived my life. If I violate this trust, I lose everything. But that's not what he said. Here's what he says. He says, how could I do this and sin against God? It's right here in Genesis chapter 39, verse nine. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing against God? Part of becoming truth-filled people is understanding that our integrity lies first and foremost in our relationship with God. That our offenses against one another, that when we lie to each other, we are offending God. That when we tell half-truths to each other, that we are sinning against God. And that God sees all. Friends, listen, I'm praying today that our consciences would be revived to know that any and everything that we're trying to hide, that the God of light and the God of truth, friends, he already knows. And he is present to give grace and he is present to bring healthy, healing, life-giving, correction and discipline where it is necessary. The next story is found out of 2 Samuel chapter 6. Many of us know this story. It's a story about a king by the name of David who in a moment where he was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was supposed to be out on the battlefield. He was supposed to be leading his men, his army in war. And yet David was taking a break. And in that time of not being where he was supposed to be, he cast eyes upon a beautiful young lady. And he took this lady into his house. He took this lady into his bed. And the scripture tells us that he violated relationships with her. And then she got pregnant. Natural consequences took its course. Several weeks later, Bathsheba comes back and she says, King, I'm pregnant. And David, the scripture tells us that David is a man after God's own heart. Friend, listen, listen. If you're here this morning and you're assuming, listen, I'm doing everything fine. I've got, I've got things down pretty well. I don't want to upset the equilibrium. Some, some of us wonder, how could David's life erode and implode? It's little half-truths. It's little things that we let slide. It's little areas where we deceive others, like Ananias. Here, I brought everything, and you know that we're holding something back because we want to look like we're generous for the community, because we so care about our position or our status or our image in the community, it can drive us into things that erode our character. And here's this man, David, who was a man after God's own heart, who wrote the majority of the Psalms filled with words of love for God. And yet, there was a blind spot. There was a weak area in his character and his relationship with truth. David realizes that he's in trouble. And what he does is he actually reaches out and he has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, come off the battlefield. You read the entire story here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David sends a letter to Joab, has Joab send Uriah back home. And here's what David says to himself. I'm going to create a plan here. It's a plan of deception. He says, I'm going to spend some time with Uriah, make him feel honored. We're going to drink some alcohol. We're going to, we're going to get his sense of thinking off a little bit. 
And naturally, naturally, Uriah's gonna go back home. He's got this hot, beautiful babe as a wife. He's been out there away from her. Naturally, he's gonna come back home and, you know, nature's gonna take its course. Uriah leaves the king's chambers after having a heavy meal and some alcohol, and he has so much integrity inside of him that Uriah doesn't even go back to Bathsheba's house, his own house, his own wife. Comes back the next day, and David's like, hey, man, what's going on? Bro, you've been working hard. You've been fighting Israel's battles. I'm sure you miss your wife. Here, let's, let's have another glass for freedom, man. Come on, let's, let's drink up. And so David and Uriah, man, they, they drink to the hilt. And he's hoping and he's trusting and he's assuming that Uriah goes back so that nine months later, David can go, congratulations, Uriah. What a beautiful son. He looks so strikingly similar to me. But enough of that. (laughs) The second night, Uriah has so much integrity inside of himself. He says, how can I go home into my home of comfort when the armies of Israel are on the battlefield? He doesn't, he sleeps outside on the street. David recognizes he's got to do something quick. So the next day he crafts a letter with his own hand. He writes it to his commander, Joab, and he sends the death sentence in the hands of Uriah. This is a man who loves God, folks. He writes on there, Joab, I need you to pursue the enemy and get as close as you can I need you to get in harm's way. And when the battle is the fiercest, I need you to withdraw everyone except for Uriah. The guy was carrying his own death sentence in his hands and he didn't even know it. How do we get here? How do we get to this place? We're out of self-preservation. We're trying to protect so much so now that David is not only an adulterer, he is now a murderer. As the story goes, David has another friend in his life, a real friend, a true friend who happens to be a national prophet. And Nathan comes and he shares his story with David. And the punchline of the story is, David, God knows your sin. God knows what you did. God knows that you had everything. And here's Uriah who has nothing. And you took the very little that he had. Nathan spoke the truth to power. Nathan spoke the truth to David. That took an immense amount of courage. But equally as important, I think it took an immense amount of love for David and for David's family and for God and for the nation. Nathan was concerned about more than David's feelings. He was concerned about more than David's reputation. He was concerned about the fame of God. He was concerned about the fame of Israel. He was concerned about the pattern that might go unchecked in David's life. Look what David reads or what David writes after he has this encounter with Nathan and conviction strikes him. Psalm 51, let's read this together beginning in verse four. David writes against you, look at this, against you God and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now hold on David, now you've sinned against a lot of people here. Are you sinned against Bathsheba when you abused your power to bring her into your bedroom? You sinned against her husband when you deceived him and then you murdered him. You deceived against Joab. You made Joab complicit 
in your murder. You, you sinned against the entire nation of Israel. And yet David recognizes something that's so important, you God. Hey, guys, if we don't have a fear of God in our lives, if our first concern is not how our sins are an offense to God, we'll never have concern about its consequence to the people around us. He is stricken with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And notice, friends, it's not condemnation. Because when the Holy Spirit leads you into truth, all truth, he'll never do it in a way that condemns you. He'll never do it in a way that makes you feel ashamed, that makes you feel embarrassed, that makes you feel like you can't or you shouldn't go on. He'll never leave you to a dead-end path where you say to yourself, I have destroyed everything and life is hopeless. He'll never do that. Friends, no matter how grave or dire the consequence the conviction of the Holy Spirit will always bring you a redemptive route to hope. He will always give you a way out. David suffered numerous consequences in his own family line for his decisions. And yet at the end of his days, the epitaph on his life by God himself was, this was a man who loved me with all of his heart and he fulfilled the purposes of God in his life. Even with the consequences that ended up being the death of some of his own children, friends. And he writes this, against you, God, and against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born in sin. I recognize this. Behold, look at this, you desire truth in the innermost places. God wants truth in the very deepest parts of our lives. God wants us to be so married to truth that it begins on the internal framework of conviction that we have a relationship with truth, that we love truth, that we love truth more than we love our own self-preservation that comes by way of falsehood and deceit. You see, really, in, in a lot of ways, we're in a battle of loves here. It's a battle of loves. We're either gonna love God so much that we love truth, regardless of what the consequences are, or we're gonna love ourselves so much that we'll practice with falsehood in order to protect and preserve whatever it is that we're trying to keep. Look at this prayer right here that David writes in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 23. Some of you are saying, okay, like, what do I do now? How do... How do I match my life to truth? How do I make the adjustments that are necessary? How do I make sure that I ensure that I don't live this kind of life? Well, friends, I believe it begins by inviting the examining light of the Holy Spirit into our lives and doing this on a regular basis. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. In fact, there are times when I, I can actually convince myself, I can convince myself, I can justify to myself that what I'm doing is acceptable. I can justify the little shortcuts. This isn't really hurting anybody. This is a stupid law anyways. I can justify. The mind will justify whatever it is that your heart has chosen. You ever been around someone and they're in a relationship and you know, and everyone around them knows, this, this relationship is not healthy. This relationship is not producing goodness or life. And yet the person that is in the middle of that, what, because their heart has become so entrenched, their heart is so married into this relationship that the mind will actually begin creating a defense case for what the heart has already chosen. 
We all know people like this where we sit back and we go, how is this possible? How do you not see this? Well, they don't see it because the heart has chosen it and the mind follows suit. And guys, listen, man, when we, are, when we are preserving and when we are hiding and we are running for our lives and we're trying to build our own empires or we're, try, we're, we're following the lusts of our flesh or we're just taking shortcuts or we're trying to make more money or whatever it is that's at the end of this, the mind is, it is so crafty and the mind will convince you that what you're doing is okay. This is where we need to pray this prayer in Psalm 139. Look in verse 23, search me, God. Search me. Search me and know my heart. You know, the interesting thing about this, guys, is that God knows your heart better than you know your heart. He knows your heart. He knows what you're capable of. He knows what you desire. He knows what's driving you. He knows what's holding you. He knows what's captivating you. And the psalmist says, God, search me. I'm inviting you into every dark, hidden crack and crevice of my life. I'm opening every door of my life to you. You have access and you have permission into the places where I would not invite another living being, but God, you have access into this place. I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed. I can't believe that I've ever done this, but God, I'm inviting you into this space. Know my heart and speak to me and test me and know my anxious thoughts. And look at verse 24. And he says, see if there is any offensive way in me. I thought this was interesting, but the New American Standard says, see if there's any hurtful way in me. Friends, when we're harboring deception, we have to understand that someone else will always pay the price for it. We will always experience the collateral damage in our relationships when we are harboring falsehood and deceit. The people closest to you will suffer the most. See if there is any hurtful way in me and now God lead me. Lead me in truth. Lead me in the way everlasting. You know, when I crafted this message, I... I was a little ambitious because I put in here, this is a two-part message, and it began with developing trustworthiness with God and that leading us to trust being built in relationships by being truthful with one another. But I think that we've, we need to spend ample time, so much so that I'm, I'm bumping the second part of this message where we can actually get into the weeds and into the nuances of being truth tellers with each other. Because guys, listen, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. The scripture tells us to speak the truth in love. It's not just walking around with our truth shotguns and just you know blasting everybody with truth. There's a way to share truth. There's a time to share truth. I, I personally am, am not an advocate for just blasting people with truth on my text messages or my emails or social media. Like honor somebody with the dignity of sitting down and looking into their eyes. Then we get nuance. Yeah. Then we may realize that the truth that we think we need to tell somebody that we're, that we're actually off. That we've got to search our own motives. And why is it that I'm so ambitious to share the truth with someone? Why is it I'm so afraid to share the truth with someone? We'll get into that next week or the week after but we're going to get into that. So today, I just want us, I want us to be thoughtful here. And I want us to allow the Holy Spirit to go just 
deep into the patterns. A lot of these things, you have to understand, they become patterns. And it starts with the little tiny things, with the little excuses that we tell ourselves. You know, you, listen, there's language that we utilize that's evasive. Last night, not to call my kids out, but, you know, next to myself, they're my best material. <laughs> but, you know, our, our, our kids have hijacked a skateboard from their cousins that we borrowed for one of my friend's sons who was in town with us, and we just haven't brought it back yet. And so Christy's been telling the kids, like, hey, don't skate in the house. Okay, mom. Don't skate in the house over and over and over and over again. And then last night, I hear, I hear this loud thud, and I'm like, what is that? Oh, it's a skateboard. And so I go up and I tell my, my youngest son, or one of my youngest sons, I said, listen, mom told you, we've told you that we're not supposed to be skating in the house. And this is what he said. He goes, oh, I forgot. <laughs> now, we laugh at that because that's cute and that's innocent. But how many times do we do that? Oh, I forgot. Oh, I didn't really understand. Oh, I wasn't sure what you meant. No, you did know. You know, you knew. And listen, listen, listen. Just because it might get you a get out of jail free pass for that round, if you continue these habits, oh, I forgot, I wasn't sure, I didn't, I didn't know what you meant, or I just, you know, if you continue this, you'll find yourself over a course of time where it will begin to erode. It'll begin to erode your character. Where your words will no longer have weight. Where someone's not sure if they can trust what it is that you're saying. And before you know it, you may find yourself in positions where you're doing atrocious things to preserve and to protect that which you've worked so hard to build. Holy Spirit, shine your light. Shine your light in our patterns. Shine your light in our behaviors. Pay attention to the language that we use that's, that is strategically used to dumb down the blunt force of our actions. Pay attention to that. Let the Holy Spirit search you guys. Jonathan, if you would come this morning, and I want to direct our hearts to Psalm 25, verse 4 and 5. And I want us to meditate on these verses as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. Psalm 25, verse 4 says, Lord, make me know your ways. Make me to know your ways. Like just roll that around over and over. God, make me know your ways and teach me your paths. Make me to know your ways and teach me your paths. Look at verse five. Guide me in your truth and teach me. This can be a scary prayer. But friends, I believe that for the sake of our relationships, our friendships, our marriages, our businesses, our churches, I believe there needs to be a revival of truth in this society. And it's difficult, but the grace of God and the empowerment of the Spirit can help us become people who embody truth. Oh God, guide us in your truth. Guide us. Holy Spirit, make us lovers of truth. 
not reckless, irresponsible lovers of truth. Not truth at the expense of, of being people of compassion, not truth at the expense of being people who can enter into the pain of others. But yet, God, we pray that we would be people who love your truth and embody your truth as Jesus embodies truth, full of grace and full of truth. Lord, would you teach us, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Now, would you take a minute before we approach the table and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you? Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.